Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This is episode 591, which means just 10 to go to number 600. Wow. This week, Khalil Robert Irving. He's included in I'll Be Your Mirror, Art and the Digital Screen at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Across more than 25,000 square feet, yikes, the exhibition examines the screen's vast impact on art from 1969 to the present. It was curated by Allison Hurst and remains on view through April 30th. Irving will deliver a lecture at The Modern this week on March 7th at 6 p.m. The Walker Art Center in Minneapolis has also just opened Khalil Robert Irving Archaeology of the Present, a presentation of new Irving sculptures, video, and found objects. Irving has situated his sculptures and other items within a large plywood platform, kind of resembling a stage. Viewers can move onto the structure to encounter both artworks and manufactured objects alike. The show, which was curated by William Hernandez Lueje, will be on view through January 21st, 2024. Irving's assemblages of images and replicas of everyday objects challenge constructions of Western identity and culture. His ceramic sculptures incorporate neglected objects that represent a historical moment, as do his room-sized, image-driven installations. Irving has had solo exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art New York and the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, and he's been featured in group exhibitions at museums such as the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, Mass Mocha in North Adams, Mass., and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. On the second segment, Rogelio Baez Vega. But first, Khalil Robert Irving, after the break. On view through February 19, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark DeSuvero Steel Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six decades-long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Khalil Robert Irving, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with your interest in the collage tradition. And specifically, I wanted to ask if there is a relationship between the 20th century and later collage tradition and your interest in digital culture. Well, to be honest, making collages really started from returning from studying abroad and studying at the Kansas City Art Institute and the program that I was in, the kind of conceptual construction and material construction in the apparatus of dealing with the relationship between the two was a bit fraught and kind of complicated. And it was set outside of the conversation of contemporary art in the way that I was learning it to be. 
And so I started making collages as a way to bring in specific iconography into my sculptural objects in college as a way to then satisfy the decorative nature of dealing with a, a, a ceramics education, quote unquote, and then also being able to kind of align myself and be in conversation with uh, some of the issues that I would hear people talk about in lectures online in terms of like listening to Carrie James Marshall's 2013 presentation at the Art Institute of Chicago or at the MCA Chicago Artists in the Studio. And in that way, that's where collage begins. And so it begins in three dimensions, not two for you. Right. Yeah. Collage begins in three dimensions, but also it combines the three-dimensional sculptural manifestation of collage or amassment or assemblage, but then it also goes two-dimensional on the surface. So the form is a certain kind of construction methodology in relationship to a collage or assemblage history. And then the surface is related to the history of collage with paper or two more two-dimensional practices. And thinking about the relationship between historical collage and digital culture, contemporary digital culture, I think that I was telling this to my grandmother the other day, and I don't think she really understood, but I was telling her that I think that you know, the desire of collage in the 20th century was a way to enact a certain kind of speed in relationship to a melodic or a kind of sonic engagement that you had to kind of be able to read on a on a work or understand through a work in the gesture in which it was made. And I think the digital culture, the existence of that in digital culture or relating to digital culture is the, instead of the speed or the sonic way of visualizing, it's then being enacted in our action. How we interrelate and interact and use the technology is the, is the kind of manifestation that people desire to enact into a work of art. And for me, I'm trying to try to pull it apart Hard in some ways, but then also exacerbated in a certain way so things can be legible and illegible simultaneously. And I don't think that that's a concern mostly of an artist like Romare Beard. And, you know, he was very much about the imagistic quality of it and the textures that he was able to arrive at while also creating an image. So for me, recognizing those histories and my and colleagues and other artists, older artists who are dealing with collage. I'm just trying to find a space to do something that is my own, but also is a little bit more free in a way, because it's very intuitive for me in the studio. I work with what I have. Do you think about or are you aware of that you're using collage in both two dimensions and three dimensions? So two-dimensional wall-mounted pieces, for example, and three-dimensional sculptures. Are are you aware of doing both at one or are they so closely related to how you got started on this 10 years ago that you don't think of them as separate processes or practices? Well, since the image transfers that I create for the sculptural objects are born out of the computer. In my Ah. exhibition at Wesleyan University, it was the first time that I had printed a digital collage and framed it in the gallery. So I took the collages I make for the, the for the ceramics and made an autonomous object of of the collages that I had made. And so that was the first time I had created a kind of schism between the intent of the ceramic and the intent of the image. 
And mm -hmm. so now dealing with making light boxes, working on video works, making digital, large scale digital wallpapers, mounting wallpaper on panel and then hanging the ways I'm thinking about it as a way of ground sitting in front of each other or screens mm -hmm. sitting in front of each other and the ground mirroring the sculptures that I make that look like asphalt, but also the ground as a, as a plane in which one can enter or uh, kind of visually enter, like we think about the history of painting. And so I, I think about it, they are together and separate at the same time. I, th I think some of the things you just said are going to come up over and over again as, as we talk here. You mentioned Carrie James Marshall. You mentioned Romare Bearden. Are there other artists who have worked in collage or who have migrated imagery across media that you think of as particularly informing you? Because I think there are one or two I should think of. And there's one artist that I think about a lot, but I don't know if he makes so much, many collages, so to speak, in, in a two-dimensional sense, but he has made a lot of works that are kind of uh, collage and it's kind of physical sense or three-dimensional sense or conceptual sense is Dieter Roth. Oh. Yeah, I think about a lot of his projects and like the spatial apparatus, like the installation uh, spatial apparatus as a certain kind of collage. And there's a series of works where he made, he collected these, he collected this stuff and put them in binders. And then you could walk through and like fold through the binders. And I think of that as a kind of collage, but hmm. I wouldn't necessarily think everybody else would. I don't think historians would necessarily agree with me or curators or, or yeah, our historians would agree with me, but I, I, I see it as a kind of collage and that's, that that work specifically is one that is in, has informed my my ideas. I think about I don't think that this is also I don't think this is a collage either, but I think about its conceptual construction as a kind of way of way of negotiating a kind of collage. But Mel Bachner's How to Measure a Room. That's interesting. Yeah, and I bring up Mel Bachner's How to Measure a Room because he's documenting the edges and the and defining the terms. You know, he's redefining the terms by which we see and we're negotiating and dealing with the space. And I think collage is doing that, too. But you put things into the collage that then have been that are circumnavigating the constraints by which you're putting a certain material into. So those are two people that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Oh, and that's course, interesting, because I, I would have guessed Robert Rauschenberg would come up pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, there are very specific people who you who we could say are direct relationships to thinking about the history of collage, but I don't I don't really necessarily I don't go for a one for one. Like you can't tell like uh my floor sculptures are based on and relate to Antioch mosaics, but when I bring it up, people are like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Because I'm not really I'm not make collage like I made the collage is the end result so I mean I I am very interested in Rauschenberg because of his capacity of like just like just making like just getting in the studio and doing a damn thing and image but, transfer yeah and transfer and he's like printing and he's he's uh working on metal he's working on glass he's working on with found object and making assemblage too you know he's doing quite a bit um there are a lot like even Micheline Thomas you know someone that I have met once but even her work is a certain kind of collage but I'm where where I'm getting it from or 
where how how it kind of manifests is is I think in a lot of ways is coming from a different place. One of the reasons I thought about Rauschenberg and your work wasn't only collage or image transfer. It's that your printmaking has featured a number of very Rauschenbergy moves. Um, in, in, in particular, yeah. your use of tire tracks in print work you made in the late 2010s. I'm thinking of works like, bear with me on these titles, Spring Streets and Stars, Rose Memories and Foil to Jack from 2019, and another work I'll bring up in a minute uh, from kind of that same series. And of course, Rauschenberg famously erased a de Kooning drawing of a tire track. And and the tire tracks are very much in these works. And I just wondered if that was a mindful callback, and if so, why? It was a callback to something that I was having to negotiate in college, to be honest. The to-go box, the soda bottles, the cans, the tire track, the objects, the collage objects on the surface of the works on paper are all a, a certain uh, renegotiation that I'm trying to have with the viewer to give them a scale relationship to what's going on in the work. And there's been, when I was in school and different different times of making, there's an abstraction present in certain works that people said, oh, this could be monumental or this mm-hmm. could be held in the palm of your hand. And so the objects in the sculptures are really meant not just to draw the viewer in and make them excited by what I'm what I'm presenting or I'm sharing, but it's also to give them a sense of relation to to what they're seeing and how it's what they're seeing and how this what the scale is is that it's more direct. And so really that's the goal. So the, the tire, tire track, track was the same. An element of scale. Like, yeah, element of scale, but also a way to fool someone. You know, for some people I could fool them and say, oh, you know, maybe a tire actually did ride on this piece of paper, you know, but it's like, because some of the ink <laughs> that I use is actually dirty, clear ink. So it looks like rain mm. so, or or it looks like a tire that ran through some a oily spot and it rolled over the paper. So in a work such as Street and Stripes, Crosswalk equals CrossFit cores, Real Road Relief, Blood Tar Grass registrars must love you there (laughs) there are some tire prints that are super realistic like you're describing like very trump lowy trump lowy tire tracks and what's interesting about that work which we'll have on manpodcast.com in relation to what you just said is like the reference the common irving references to to go containers and plastic bottles and coke cans or whatever are referential without seeming to be Trump Loy, but the tire track looks like the real deal. It is a brain futzer. And so I I'd wanted to bring this work up for a couple of reasons. So that the realness of the tire track in that work in particular reminds me of a certain relationship between your work and Rauschenberg. But there's lots else in this work I'm fascinated by that I wanted to bring up, such as the colors. So the colors in this work are red, green, and black, the Pan-African colors with yellow. So maybe first off, because I don't think that when people talk about your work, they talk about your palette a lot, but there's palette here. So let's talk about it. Why those colors? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are personal reasons and they're like, like super specific personal and familial references to this and like to like the use of color. 
and going to school at the Kansas City Art Institute and going to Washington University in St. Louis and thinking about social justice and issues of police brutality and things that are happening and like dealing with reading and writing and trying to get involved in the history of being safe or making space to be safe for, for Black people specifically. It's just like the palette really the use of these colors is really recalling and dealing with that, with that, the conversation of a certain kind of presence or or commitment to blackness, but also a like a historical commitment because I'm thinking about the people who constructed and used the color for those specific reasons, but then also a way to kind of manifest it or make it look or make it exist in a way that is not necessarily directly related to or pulling from or culling from that history. So that it's not appropriative, but that it's in conversation with, because it's like the issue of black nationalism or black freedom and liberation has to kind of exist somewhere. Like there has to be space for it. And I'm not trying to say like black people need to be free. And these are the reason why they need to be free. Or it's like it's not meant to be so direct in a way. And so it's the goal really is to like talk about it as it's from the ground or it's from the world around us or it's from the space in which we exist or it's a part of the space in which we exist but also the works on paper the specific the large-scale works on paper are also they are a part of this kind of conversation of world building that i have been kind of participating in and that's like sometimes it's very direct and sometimes it's not so direct but in a lot of ways it it kind of is, it is, yeah, folding through and working through this kind of practice of thinking of a world that doesn't necessarily specifically exist, but is able to kind of collate and be in relationship to all of these other kind of social and uh, cultural problematics uh, that kind of frame and unframe and kind of like legitimize or, or also can complicate and negate what I'm saying or what I'm doing. This same work, this same Street and Stripes work, has in the, like just to the left of center, a very specific X. Lots of art history to to that X, from Willem de Kooning's 1947 painting Zurich. Julie Maritou used a similar X in paintings, in her paintings that address the events in Ferguson. Why the X? I've been using the X off and on since I studied abroad in, in Jerusalem at Bezalel Academy of Art and Design. And thinking about the archive or the dig or the kind of excavation of something, it's been a mar it's like a marker. I remember when I was younger and Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf and in the aftermath and dealing with the people who died and lost their homes and how they kind of counted animals and counted the beings, like people's bodies that were still in buildings. The X is, is just what it's meant to, it's meant to be used for. It's like, a, it's a marking of sorts. It's a place, a placeholder to say it's here. And, and I think on houses in New Orleans in the wake of Katrina that were slated for condemnation and demolition, the the city or state or whoever authorities marked houses that were not to be re-inhabited with an X. And then on and in the X, the bottom, the right, the left. Oh, that's right. Had numbers in it. I forgot to about that. Yeah. 
And so in a lot of ways, the X is like there is space or there is something that exists there, you know, or and so the and and the X in certain works is like to let you know that that's the ground, that's a place, and there may be something beyond. You know, there is like this is a ground or this is a place to see, but this moment or this marker is telling you that that it doesn't end here. So you're telling me that, yes, you know that art history of the X and you're aware of it, but you're doing more with it. Yeah. A lot of ways, it's a lot about, it's a lot about landscape. A lot of the things that I'm doing is very much about landscape. And it's not just landscape in the sense of it being of the ground or of the street or of the space in which one can inhabit and walk on, but it's a, it's a space that is, it's a, it's, it's a, really trying I'm really trying to push it a lot of things all the time and I don't know if it necessarily always gets gets there but uh it's always been so many abstractions folding in on itself um and I've been trying to I've been trying to rectify that and pull back but it's also getting harder and harder because I just there's just so much to do there's so much to say there's so much to be involved with. Are the white stripes in this work a crosswalk? Desiring to be, yeah, or referential to. Because they read that way. And of course, the tire tracks move move across them. The, the other thing that's here, and this is probably a good transition to another body of work, is that the, however I phrase this, it's going to come off wrong, but the kind of white splotches that run across the work, you know, kind of read as either splattered paint or tesserae. And I wonder what the relationship between a work such as Street and Stripes and your floor-ish mounted sculptures is? Well, so in the floor sculptures, I'm using white white clay or white ceramic to make the gravel in uh make the gravel in the asphalt. And then the white specks, I'm also trying to I'm trying to do that same thing. It's a little it's a little bit difficult because it's just a little Materially, it just exists differently. It's executed differently, but that's really the that's really the goal is to be making a, a certain kind of as like an asphalt like reference, but through the material and linking the two media and the two bodies of work. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about those sculptures a bit. There is in the Walker Show going to be a new. Do I want to call it a floor-mounted sculpture? How, what do I want to call it? It's a floor-sighted-ish sculpture. Maybe I should just shut up yeah. and let you describe it. <laughs> yeah, that 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 sounds pretty close. The work at the Walker Art Center is going to be it's going to be a large-scale installation that's about two thousand square feet, and the viewer is going to walk up onto a platform, and then there are going to be different locations that are cut out in the platform where works will be a, a revealed or will emerge from. And so three, there'll be floor, three floor sculptures in the exhibition. One's called Ground Gate, Wayview, Glam and Glitter, Aligned Portal. So the, the sculpture Ground Gate references like a, a doormat or like a, a, a kind of where you step before you enter a doorway or a portal. Thinking about those Antioch mosaics more specifically that are in front of spaces in which you kind of enter a larger room. The next new work for the show is called Street View, Pool and Paper, 
underground star ways. And so the titles reveal something maybe about what I desire the work to do and or what I desire to be existing in the work. And so the the new large work has this like one by one inch frame that goes around the whole thing and it makes the exterior tiles of this four piece uh, kind of look like a pool of a certain kind of sort, like a, a very shallow pool. And I made these thin sheets of clay look like paper and I used newspaper articles referencing violence that the Klan enacted in the 20th century, but also certain parts of freedom in the 20th century and 21st century, uh, local newspapers and the New York Times. And one of the largest sheets references the how many people died from COVID. So there's like a way to try to link. I'm trying to link historical things, historical events with cur current events and in the title, it says Underground Starways. And so that's a reference to the, the kind of constellations or, or stars or the moon being used to navigate an underground passageway to navigate a social and cultural constraints by people who were enslaved. And so that, and when I was making reference to the Pan-African flag and Rastafarianism and the previous work that we were talking about, like there's a difference between the sign and the signified and what the signifier is. And so in a lot of ways, the abstractions that are folding in on themselves in my work are referencing the kind of like lyrical flourishes of music that have been used to then kind of take further a certain kind of information. And so how then can you make a lyrical flourish into a sculpture and more make it more dynamic to engage a certain kind of iconography or or conceptual or material issue or social apparatus that then can it can evolve and a book that I have been trying to get my hands on and finish reading and kind of look through more intently is Soul on Ice and so the third floor sculpture uh, at the Walker Art Center is called Soul on Stars star 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 from 2021 and it's a work that I'm keeping in my own collection it was recently on view in my exhibition street moments at petzl gallery on the upper east side but these floor sculptures are really important because they do relate to the ground they do relate to these antioch mosaics but i'm really trying to push the viewer away from this certain kind of proprietary relationship that they that people can get with an artwork that you look at it from a certain perspective and you kind of can enter it and you can own it a sculptural object, you can stand over it, you can pick it up, you can move it around, and there's like a certain kind of authority that the viewer has. And these floor sculptures are really desiring to like reorient the authority, you know, ground someone or humble someone when they are approaching it or engaging it, because it's not about the ownership, it's not about the authority of, of your presence in relationship to an object or being able to understand it, because these that the sculptures and the works on paper also have this full bleed, you know, that they are a part of a greater whole. They're cut from a bigger, they're cut from a bigger object. They're part of a bigger world. Antioch has come up a couple times. All of your sculptural work has a relationship with archaeology, comes from an interest in archaeology. How did you get interested in archaeology? I don't necessarily think that I have a specific interest in archaeology. I think when I, I studied abroad in Jerusalem and going to the Mount Masada and like running up the side and it taking an hour and a half to hike up the side of that mountain 
and like being present in that experience or going to the church where Jesus was supposed to be been born, like the church that was built on the ground that Jesus was born on. And when I entered the church, the whole interior of the building was covered in scaffolding and they were really, they were revealing mosaics on the floor and parts of the construction was the building was being kind of re supported and, and renovated. I think, again, the frame of dealing with archaeology or parts of how things are of the past are being revealed is a is a process or a part of the structure by which I'm trying to kind of get through so many close connections of the political, like the political architecture of how we're viewing and dealing with life uh, in the 21st century in a late capitalist society, specifically the United States. I don't know if I, because I'm not going to go on on dig, you know, I'm not interested in bones, <laughs> but I am interested in the different kind of manifestations of architecture. Like we think about the built world as a space, like architecture as a space in which we can inhabit or we can interact within, or it's built for our pleasure or our, our domicile, uh, but also the architecture of why the building is built this way or the architecture of the politic of why there's white supremacy and why did it have to be made? Why did Europe have to be a global capitalist power and rape the rest of the world for its resources? And why did the sun never set on the English empire? Like, what is the architecture of that? And then I'm like taking different things and then kind of tweaking them and putting them together. And that's kind of how I got to archaeology. I don't know much about archaeology, but I know that many of the same, you know, that at a dig, many of the same objects recur, you know, vases, jars for water, olive oil, what have you. And in your three-dimensional sculptural work, and really in your print work too, there are a lot of objects that recur, stuff we talked about earlier, such as plastic bottles, references to cans, to-go food containers. Is that where that comes from? Or is there another reason that objects recur in your sculptures? Well, the, the objects reoccur because I have those molds and I don't like to waste or throw things away. <laughs> A good part reason. of it is I don't, I don't have enough time to make new molds all the time. <laughs> Nuts and bolts but of being also, an artist. <laughs> right. But it also relates to the specific references and why I started using some of those things in the first place. Everything has a has two or three reasons why I'm using it. And there are some reasons why I'll never, what I'll never reveal. You know, like the to-go box in the soda bottle has like been a, like a keystone in my life since living in St. Louis. And it has been exposed to me in a certain way because like in a lot of ways, some of the references relate to my mother. They relate to my grandmother, my father's mother. And my the references to my grandmother are kind of a certain relationship to survival or kind of memorial. So there's like a darkness in the work that exists mm -hmm. because of its social, like the issue of dealing with its dealing with things socially. But then when you when if I start to describe the more specific kind of orientation of why something exists in a certain way, you start to reveal there's a certain humanity in the work that's less dark. There's like a more spiritual sense in the work. And so I, I, so in some ways, the references or the issues or the apparatus is a way to kind of secure myself or hide or kind of allow 
me to exist in the world without having to explain it, but also my like my existence or the problematics of what I'm trying to think about can still relate to a more broad community or a more broad audience. You know, how how can I how can more than how can many people get into the work and they say, you know, it's like the issue is, well, art is in the eye of the beholder or the meaning is in the eye of the beholder. But I think a lot of people don't really realize that there is an intent that an artist makes that people are desiring, like they want someone to arrive at. And and I'm trying to take that and take, like make space for my meaning to exist and someone else's idea to exist at the same time. And there be legibility enough that if they continue to engage the work, my issue will be revealed and they won't feel like I'm telling them that they're wrong, but it's in conversation. It's like in a conversation. No, I, I think that, at least for me, when a viewer sees something recurring either within an individual artwork, the way like that ABC Action News logo recurs in like a serial form in, in one of your collages or when something like the to-go containers or a Sodi can, see, I can slip into Missourian, <laughs> recurs across media and in multiple objects. I, I, I do think that tells us something's important and to think about it. And I guess as an art nerd, I love I, I love being directed that way. You know, speaking of of kind of the stuff of urban life, the stuff of of American late capitalist life, in works such as those in your Black Ice Suite or your Black Ice series, you often point viewers to beauty that is in places that some people, particularly whites, considered as places to flee places that they mindfully and personally and governmentally abandoned in an effort to, to segregate. We've talked about St. Louis a couple of times. St. Louis is a city within the United States that was constructed as a series of racializations from its European-American beginnings, um, and it still is that. There's a great book about that by Walter Johnson called The Broken Heart of America that I couldn't possibly recommend more. Do you think of yourself as migrating the discovery of beauty in the core of the city into the work? And if so, what got you started in that direction? I moved to St. Louis when I was four or five from a rural city, rural town called Norfolk, Nebraska, where my mother's family's from. And my mother's mother's family immigrated from Bern, Switzerland to Bern, Indiana. And then somehow they found themselves in Nebraska. And so then moving to St. Louis, you know, I and I think one thing that I'd like to like kind of bring a note to is that when we think about urbanity, we think about city, but we don't think about the urbanity within the rural kind of less populous area. And it's like living or thinking about remembering living in a place like Norfolk or teaching at a school like Alfred University in Western New York State past the Finger Lakes. But there's there's a certain kind of decay that's existing in those, you know, smaller urban environments. And I think about urban as any space that has asphalt road, because if it's if it don't have asphalt road, then it has not a it has not evolved uh, in a certain kind of social construct that that they don't have access you know, to to asphalt. So. When I think about the decay and like the issues of parts of the, like my experience or a social experience of living in St. Louis, in a lot of ways, it's kind of coming from an understanding or a perspective of looking at and desiring a history of industry 
and the evolution mm. of industry, you know, in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, the 18th, 19th and 20th century in St. Louis specifically was a, was a brick city. It was like brick factories everywhere, building buildings. My house was a 20th century built light commercial building that has steel I-beams running through it with steel mm. posts. And that's holding up the building. The brick on the outside is just a kind of, it's like a skirt on skirt on steel frame. And what is that? What is like in, in, in St. Louis's beauty, you can see so much evolution in what we were able to achieve in terms of making stuff. There were people who helped also make that happen. And one project that I'm working on coming up is with LAX Art and LA MoCA for the Monuments Show curated by Hamza Walker and Bennett Simpson. And I think Carol Walker is advising the curatorial team. And my project for that exhibition is using the Emancipation Monument and trying to reframe the perspective on how we see the two figures in the sculpture, Abraham Lincoln and the, and the Black man in the, in the sculpture named Archer Alexander, who was an enslaved man who was forced to work in brick factories in St. Louis as well. And so that so thinking about frame, thinking about beauty, but like, I think one way to imbue and engage a kind of engage beauty is a, is a way, is you, a tool that can be used as a certain, as a reframing of something. So how to add something into a work or describe something in a work or reference a place or a location or a site, but then how it's described and communicated, can that be the way in which both at the same time. The Emancipation Memorial you're referencing is the sculpture designed by Thomas Ball in 1876 on the occasion of the American Centennial. I think there are a number of versions of it. The Maybe the best known one is in Lincoln Park on Capitol Hill in, in Washington, D.C. For LA MoCA, we got the one from Boston that was decommissioned. And so it's a large bronze. It's 12 feet by eight feet by eight feet. I, I uh, must be fun to have to make something that stands up next to something that enormous and bronze. <laughs> I'm actually working in brick. Oh, that'll hold up to bronze. So, so for the full, for the LA Mocha project, it's going to be a certain kind of structure that's built out of brick that will kind of be used as a framing device. Which I imagine is related to your use of ceramic and other materials that come from the ground that but also archer alexander was enforced to was enslaved and forced to work in brick factory in st louis oh how about that so it's working with the with the figure working with the biography of the figure as a way to then use a reference to his kind of labor and then build a structure that then reframes the viewer's understanding of the of the figure through a historical reference of what he was a, what he was doing as a way then to further the abstraction, but then also kind of maybe elucidate another uh, or new ways of dealing with the, the big bronze, uh, dealing with the site of LA Moga or the Geffen specifically with the fact that it has train tracks running in the back of the building, that it's a, a, a gathering space in the front of the building that can't be blocked because of city ordinances for cars to be able to drive through in an emergency. And so in a lot of ways, the installation that I've proposed and I've been working on is a, is a kind of reorientation in relationship to the different sites within the Yepens architecture and then dealing with that, 
that monument in and itself to connect, connect the past, the present, and what's possible. One of my friends tells me all the time, you can't date potential. You know, you can't what someone, what you wish someone to be. You know, in a lot of ways, the architecture of this project is what I wish is like reframing. If we were to make a new emancipation sculpture and, and if we could use my reframing device of dealing with the past, the present, and the potential of what the future could be, then could we make a new emancipation monument? Or could mm-hmm. we memorialize and remember Archer Alexander in another way? And could this be then the kind of blueprint to thinking about it? Not necessarily that this is the reframing or this is what it should be, but that this could be a frame by which to see it. Some of that construct reminds me of Fred Wilson's Indianapolis project abandoned probably 15, 17 years ago. Some of the same questions addressed differently. Well, I also think about the Essa Gates saying like, you know, he was making a thing and for so long he made a thing. And then when, and when he started to develop his studio a little bit more and more exhibitions came along and the project at the Milwaukee Art Museum came and he started working with the the archive and thinking about David Drake as a, as a as a maker and then thinking about himself and dealing with the archives in which he was collecting and these collections that he's now having to steward and build homes for making the thing that then makes the thing you know making the apparatus but it's like I don't necessarily for myself I'm not at that scale of a studio or uh, as a practitioner. And so it's like, I'm not trying to make the thing that makes the thing or build the home for the thing to live or renegotiate space to put, make home for something. But I do think that, uh, that the model or the drawing is still a valuable thing. Even if you can't realize, like one artist, also another artist that I think about quite a bit is Diane Simpson, an old artist that lives and works in Chicago. You know, it's like, and you, if you see some of her older cardboard sculptures, she had a really big exhibition at Wesleyan University a few years ago of uh, several decades, I think a few decades of her cardboard sculptures, but the drawings that come along with those sculptures, the sculptures still come alive through those drawings. They still manifest a presence of her vision and and what she desires you to understand or realize or think about in relationship to the work is still very much as present. And so I'm thinking about Diane. I'm thinking about that and t- like the way she's dealing with the drawing and making the sculpture and laying things out ahead of time in relationship to all the exhibitions coming up, like the Walker Art Center's Archaeology of the Present opening next month or February, and then the project that Allison Hurst invited me to be a part of at the Modern in Fort Worth, I can be your mirror, art in the digital screen. You know, like, (laughs) I'll be your mirror. I'll tell you, I'll show you the things of yourself. So sensual in a way. And then how can you take that sensuality to, how can you massage an abstraction, you know, to where it's like, it's not, it's not pompous, it's not sharp. It doesn't slice and separate. But that an abstraction is a is a is a kind of another thing that I think about all the time is the god Janus, how you can how Janus stands and looks to the future and the past at the same time. You know, how can an abstraction exist in a liminal space and be reflexive? But then it's also like there still can be right and wrong. Like there can still be things that are right and wrong. I want to begin to wrap up by returning to digital collage. You mentioned the show at the Modern in Fort Worth. If you can give your work 15 word titles, no wonder you can remember exhibition titles. 
Um, (laughs) So one of the pieces in Fort Worth is going to be one of these big wall-mounted digital collages. And before we taped, I asked you if they were made out of vinyl. And you began to tell me no and what they actually are and why. They're an adhesive fabric. So what, what is that and how and why were you attracted to that? form or medium or whatever you'd call it well it operates like vinyl but it's just it 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 operates just like vinyl it goes up on the wall the seams are visible and invisible at the same time it takes ink well it has a really nice surface but the material specifically that i use or like to use regularly is called phototex and phototex is like a it's an industrial product and the work at the the modern is the work of the modern is I'm exhibiting brand new paintings, a brand new digital collage framed. I'm showing two new sculptures, a sculpture that was exhibited at the new museum triennial. And I'm just like, Allison allowed me the space to kind of take this 22 by 22 foot room and just like create in a lot of ways. I think of the, like the exhibition at the museum of modern art projects for Robert Irving and the exhibition at dusk at the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis. In a lot of ways, I think of my installations as puzzles. I think of them as puzzles in some of the sculptures that I've been making that are one foot by two foot tile sculptures, or that's a module where I make bigger works, like the Singapore Biennial, Many Grounds, Many Myths in 2019. It was the goal is, is like those things look like game boards. The tiles look like they could mm. be folded up and objects are put on top and you just need a you just need a couple dice that you could just roll and shake and then all the things would move around like the Jumanji game board. But there's so much personal information that I don't divulge to the viewer. Like in the modern, there's a picture of my brother and sister and one my youngest cousin. But there's this figure that's standing next to them that is uh, the back of a person's body wearing jeans. It's just like the booty and the jeans. And then I uh, put a top on it. I had to put a top on the person. So I had this picture of a, a motorcycle driver or a motor, motor race car driver with the jacket. And then I was like, well, that, that's not right. And so then I put a, a football hat, a football a helmet person with dreadlocks from Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys. And then on top of that, I put an astronaut's body and I kind of erased through all the layers to expose all the different layers. And that that figure, you don't see their face, their back is standing to you. But then one of the older football players recent from recent news is like looking at this abstract figure that I made in the collage. Uh. And so like, who is that man facing this older black gentleman? And the show's called I'll Be Your Mirror. So is so then maybe you could reveal the identity or the race of the man in the helmet astronaut suit because of who he's facing. And I don't know, it's like, it's a puzzle. It's a lot of puzzles. So one of the things about the digital collages, which do often feel puzzle-like, like jigsaw puzzle-like almost, yes. without, without the little cutout little thingies, is that the digital collages are, especially when you're using adhesive fabric on a wall, super flat. I mean, the you know idea of adhering something to a wall is to make it as flat as you you literally can. Are you interested in 
flatness, both in physical form in the gallery and in making the digital collage, the compilation of all those images as, as possible? I think about the wallpaper and using wallpaper in relationship to like the sculptures get wrapped in digital in digital collage and vintage decals and enamel. And so I'm dealing with the architecture of that object. Well, with the wallpapers, I'm forcing the viewer to renegotiate their issue or their uh, problematic to the architecture of the room. I got it. So I in a lot it. of ways, the flatness it's going to be dimensional as hell because you're having to negotiate the depth or the the proximity by which you're able to understand the scale or information in the image. There's a new collage that I'm working on right now that has a a plane, an airplane wing protruding into the wall. And so you're where you're standing, you see this image of the plane wing but you know, if you have ever been on a plane, you can only arrive at that photograph from sitting in the seat on an airplane. But then a specific you see seat, this, even, yeah. Right. And then you see this going through the wall of the museum into this room. It's like giving you, it's like, it's like the closet in Narnia, you know, or it's like <laughs> that moment in, uh, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz or Great, the Wiz. You know, like at the end of The Wiz, when the main character comes back into reality and it's nighttime and it's snowing and it's like and she's like, oh, I'm back. I'm here. And it's like in, in the installation, it's like the reverse. Perfect to end on that collision of influences and references and mashups. Khalil Robert Irving, thank you. Thank you so much. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Opening on February 12th, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents I'll Be Your Mirror, Art and the Digital Screen. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition examines the screen's vast impact on art from 1969 to the present, including more than 60 works by 50 artists. Artists including Corey Archangel, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, Hito Sterl, and Hassan Alahi examine screen culture through a broad range of media, such as paintings, sculpture, video games, digital art, augmented reality, and video. Screens affect nearly every aspect of life today. Their pervasiveness has bred a 24-7 breaking news cycle, the looming corporate-sponsored virtual reality metaverse, unlimited accessibility and content, and an ease in how ideas and images are distributed, undoubtedly shaping culture in profound ways. The exhibition starts in 1969, the year of the televised Apollo moon landing and the launch of the Internet's prototype ARPANET, and continues through the present. I'll be your mirror, art, and the digital screen at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through April 30th. Welcome back. Next up, Rogelio Baez Vega. 
He's included in No Existe Un Mundo Post Huracan, Puerto Rican Art in the Wake of Hurricane Maria at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. The exhibition, organized to coincide with the fifth anniversary of the disastrous Hurricane Maria, explores how artists have responded to the years since that event. It includes 15 artists from Puerto Rico and the diaspora. It was curated by Marcelo Guerrera with Angelica Arbelayas and will be on view through April 23rd. Baez Vega's paintings often portray modernist buildings dating from Puerto Rico's post-war boom. While his pictures sometimes show the island's rich vegetation overtaking physical structures, they imply both a dystopian future and nature's promise. Rogelio Baez Vega, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. I'm very excited about this interview. When did abandoned modernist buildings first capture your attention and why? Well, you know, I use the, the modernist buildings because this was our first country project. This was in the moment we many, many things happened in the 50. We have our first governor. We have our first Puerto Rican governor because to the end of the 40, the last governor was Redford Tocqueville who was for the for the Roosevelt administration. In in that moment, you know, many things happened. We established the Estado Libre Asociado. In English it's a Commonwealth. But it's a tricky thing because we start to build a country but we are a colony. Right? We still be a colony, but the two governors like it's uh, like high, like in this status, like particular status, but but many Puerto Rican, you know, architect, urban planning, sociology involved in the corriente, the the wave of build a modern Puerto Rico. And for me, this context is very particular because for one side we have the best of the our people, you know, thinking about the city and the social project. But in the other side, the governor tried to take advance of the new, you know, like construction and everything to to help, you know, the agenda for the new company of the USA established in Puerto Rico and you know. If we have better roads, well, the private sector can be, they can take advantage of this progress, right? Yeah, and invest. Okay, but I don't know, I don't want now to appoint that, but, you know, the thing is, in the way we are now, I, I like the opportunity to bring this back and people be civilized and, and take a first look, another look, or project, right? Because I, I love when I have these ideas and like a painter and put and put this thing in a painting. You know, it's it's a it's a weird thing. Like when you put this subject in a painting, in a big painting, in a big artwork, something you know take attention and uh, bring bring questions, right? And that's the thing I want to appoint, no? Because I don't, you know, I'm not an, an expert in urban planning, architecture, and anything. But I can, I have my perception of you, uh, my worries about 
the perception of my space and my spaces and you know my surrounding my stream my school my my house right and that's been my subject my team for the last 20 years and in the last five years i start to visualize the modern this modern building because you know the modern schools and the modern hospital hot hotels you know social places like hospital it's not like a romantic you know memory i really care about what happened with this building and i i put this this aesthetic thing that i use nature and look like a, this topic abandoned places because i want people care about what happened with this building and the future of this building you know and i want to bring con you know like a question and people notice and ask what happened here that that's kind of my thing right now yeah let me jump in one of the things you've been exploring in paintings a lot in the last couple of years is the combination of modernist buildings and extremely lush, bright, green, successful <laughs> vegetation. Nature existing with or nature moving into those modernist buildings. What about that combination of human-built optimism, if you will, and, and nature moving in appeals to you? You know, ma many things happen when I use the nature. When I start doing this, I use it like, you know, when, when, when we abandon a project, when we abandon a place where we, we are absent of the, on, in a space, on, on the space, the plants start growing in the corners. And this is a symbol of you don't take care of this place like usual you do, right? And for me, this was a learning and how the, the, you know, the plants, they are going to use this place and they're going to do his thing, right? Also, you know, the, the, the paradigm, the paradigm of this architect of the modernists, they try to combine nature and architecture and put it in the place and create this balance of, you know, we are care about the nature, but also we have to live in places, right? And, and the idea of the modern architect was that, right? To create this balance of living. But this thing is very tricky because, you know, to build this balance, of, to maintain this balance, we have to care. We have to, to be wise, not intelligent. We have to be proud. We have to be proud when we have the opportunity to maintain a plan. We can be proud of us because we can care something with life, right? For me, that was some, something, something beautiful, but, you know, can be contradictory. And I like these gray areas because when we can care about spaces, when we, you know, abandon spaces, the nature going to do his thing in his way. I be a little bit exaggerating and how I do that, no? Because I also, I also, you know, create this 
utopical, like the utopia, the modern artists and architects, this kind of joy and optimism, <laughs> right, in that era. And this is characteristics, you know, of this moment, right? I put everything in the, my painting. It's the way I communicate. And sometimes I exaggerate because I want to tell something. I got to say, a lot of the exaggerations are a lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of visual... Cynical, you know, because... Yeah, there's there's visual pleasure in the exaggeration. And the exaggeration underscores the questions you're asking. One of the ways you build your pictures is not only with oil paint, but you use beeswax and gold pigment in your paint. Why and how did you land on adding those two things to your paint? Yeah, before that, I want to tell that many of the, the buildings I paint, they are not abandoned right now. Yes, I create this imaginario, no, right? Yeah, the future look, and, 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 and I, you know, I, I, I play with the premonitions, and that's why I do this. It's, it's, it's a premonition view, right? The goal is when I, I want to create, as a painter, I want to build and develop different way to, to manage painting, to, to create the painting look the way I want, you know, a very specific because, you know, changing the aspect of the painting and the way I put it, the painting in the canvas or in wood, whatever, I'd, I'd be able to create a unique mark, right? Also, you know, in my research about this wax, I create this specific recipe with wax and damar varnish and gold metallic pigment, right? And I create this massa, like dense painting because the wax, because the wax is very dense and I can handle with the brush, right? Cannot handle with the brush, right? And I have to, to manage other things to put the painting. And the thing with the gold in a specific is because, it's because the light is how the gold reflect the light. And for me, it's very important to show this. It's a, this is kind of a fetish that I had like almost all my life. When I, in the 80s, when my, my mom moved to New York and I spent like two months in, in New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and in the, in the winter, right? <laughs> and for me, it was very, it wasn't a, a light experience. Because Puerto Rico almost every day is, you know, every year is bright, you know, all year long is the, I know, I don't know if you've been in Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, you know, the light and how the light, you know, beat the walls, hit the walls, you know, the street, the whatever, the, the plants. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. When I've been in, in the U.S., for me, it was a very dull and, you know, what was a, a life-changing, a life you know, an aesthetic thing like uh, impact in how I see, you know, my surrounding and, and everything. And, you know, for many years I tried to, to pursue this, this how I, I can translate this life in my, in my artwork. And I find the goal 
but you know in this specific way because i can use gold but you know when you mix it with the wax and the recipe that i use and how you say like how the light how the surface capture the light and retain the light it's something that i you know i mesmerize about how how i build this and i try and i and i start to using the building you know to create spaces it was a unique thing for me you know when i when i do this it was a very original kind of mark you know one of the great things about painting is how different surfaces can be and and what painters can do with surface it's one of my favorite little painting nerderies in, in a couple of recent series, Colonial Fiction and your Coastal Studies series, you've been painting sunsets, dramatic, loud, bright sunsets. Why sunsets? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the first thing I see. I live very, very close to the, to the ocean and the, and the coast. It's many things happen, you know. I... In, in some areas, in some times, it's, it's a very hard landscape, right? It's a very hostile, it's beautiful, but, you know, when you don't have, you know, the, the accommodation or the, the infrastructure, the right infrastructure to, for living the coast, it's very hard. And many of our, you know, poor people live in the coast you know, like, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I want to point that the erosion, the thing of the erosion of the, the erosion. Er, erosion of of the everything. The erosion is a metaphor for everything. No? The, the erosion of the, you know, you your flesh, your soul, your eyes, your 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 hair. Sometimes I point to the exotization of the Caribe, no. And I exaggerate the, the view. <laughs> and that's why the sunset are like exploring and lies. And, you know, I, it's the way I try to appoint many things. These paintings are very personal, you know. When I make this painting, I do it alone. It's something that I do in a different way because the other painting are that like studio painting, very celebrity, very, you know, I have I have an assistant and I do, you know it's a it's a it's a build thing, a build process. But that area of the coast is very like very intuitive and intimate. So across art history and and especially United States art history, you know when we think of paintings of sunsets, you know they're never or rarely full of people. You know, it's very often a one-on-one -on -one engagement between a painter and and the land and the sunset. And yeah, like you said, that that individual intimacy is really important to the scene that's being presented. And maybe that's one reason I like them. <laughs> I want to wrap up by asking about a series of works you made six or seven years ago about the governor's mansion in Puerto Rico. The governor's mansion is a mid-16th century neoclassical building, 
and I think it's the oldest executive residence in the Americas. So it's almost it's almost 500 years old. Why were you interested in painting interiors of the governor's mansion? Well, this happened because I want to be more political in my paintings, right? I want to be, I want to appoint the thing of the, you know, the or major problem is the, the colonialists. For me, when I learned of politics, when I, I don't know, in my 18, when I was 18, the first thing I, when I start reading in the literature of Puerto Rican literature, right? The main point was the colonialism and the many, you know, the many ways that the colonial relation with United States increase or spiritual poverty. And when this happened, no matter how, how much money comes, if our spirit is damaged, we can do anything good as a country, as a nation, right? And when I do this painting, I want to to appoint it, and it's because I do spaces, right? I do architecture or or not architecture to try to appoint the careless of architecture, right? The governor mentioned the Fortaleza, the Palacio de Santa Catalina is the correct name. You know, it's, it's, if, if I'm going to appoint a place or a space, have to be this, this space because it's a mention of the all the governors of the Spain governors who live there when the invasion come in the 1894. And I, the thing is, I, I try to, to paint all the, you know, the, you know, the palacios have names, right? The, the mirror room, the blue room, all the palace have this, in the world have this name, the music room. And I try to, you know, to make a painting about every room. And I start with, with the Salon de los Espejos, the, the mirror room. And the mirror room have this chandelier who have this specific story, you know, from the Reina Isabel. And I want to show the different way of the colony rotting your soul, right? Because it's difficult to appoint, you know, like it's space speak to you, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, I do different kind of decay. And one painting, the chandelier is fell, and I try to show this moment of the fell of the of the chandelier and all the 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 the, sh- the shadow and the 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 movement and the energy of a chaos creating this room at this moment. The office I'll also do a flores para fortaleza. It's flower to to fortaleza. It's a painting who show the revolution that never happened. In this specific painting is the office of the governor, right? And I paint the the moment of the office is blow, blown up because the revolution started. The other painting is the blue room. The blue room has this beautiful blue, but the blue is like male and 
desgaste, degraded, and you can see it's, it's look like many of the of the mansion in Cuba, you know, that they never they never restore. Some of them they never restore and have this, you know, this this mark of the this decay of the time. And yeah, mostly show in a specific way of decay. Because you know what? This architect, like the Fortaleza Hire to 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 inspect the the condition of the Fortaleza, one of the the architects, the assistant of the architect was my friend and I have the opportunity to to see the condition of the Fortaleza. I noticed many, you know, like they make up because they don't want to be responsible of the restoration of the palace. They put a bandage, right? Like they don't do the work they have to do. And for example, the crowd molding like felt and, you know, showing the, the layer of carelessness, right? And this talk to me, you know, I see many things in the, also because the architect, you know, a point of, oh, this happened here, oh, this happened in the floor, in the ceiling, that we have to do this thing here, 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 you know, and that's, that's in that moment, I, I start creating the, the painting, and yeah, this was my, my point of view of, or, of these spaces, and also the, you know, the premonition is there, you know, future. History and future together. Yeah, they're, they're wonderfully intense pictures. Rogelio Baez Vega, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.